Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Trompe l'oeil art challenges viewers to make perceptual distinctions between things that look extraordinarily similar. It stages lessons in perception, imitation, and deception, while piquing our delight in the pleasures of wit. Drawing upon the National Gallery of Art's important collection of American still life painting, Wendy Bellion explores the serious fun of illusion in a lecture from the inaugural John Wilmerding Symposium on American Art, held at the National Gallery of Art on October 22, 2016. The John Wilmerding Symposium on American Art is made possible by a generous grant from the Walton Family Foundation. So Mark has given us a really superb introduction to the genre of American still life, and I'd like to continue that discussion by examining a closely related practice of painting, namely trompe l'oeil, or fool the eye, which enjoyed great popularity in the United States at both the outset and at the conclusion of the 19th century. It's a real delight to talk about trompe l'oeil at the National Gallery, which includes many exemplary paintings in this vein, including Harnett's old violin on the left-hand side. Trompe l'oeil has also been a focus of Professor Wilmerding's important scholarship, including his important study of John Pito, and you see one of Pito's best-known works from the gallery here on the right-hand side. Harnett and Pito were the masters of trompe l'oeil painting during the 1880s and 1890s, and following their example, a number of American artists reveled in the creation of visual doppelgangers and deceptions. They painted exacting imitations of objects, ranging from cupboards and currency, as you see here, to parrots and potatoes. I think the parrot painting is fantastic. I think of the parrot as the great bird king of uh, nature, nature's great mimic. Uh, these potatoes are a little bit more confusing. Who does this to potatoes, right? Um, but a fascinating picture from the 1880s. Trompe l'oeil artists also took uh, great joy in creating things that appealed to the senses from things that you could touch, as in the left, a painting that invites us to try and reach through those panes of sharp, broken glass to get at the nuts in that cupboard or things to touch and write with. On the right-hand side, an absolutely extraordinary trompe l'oeil painting by John Haberly, the slate, that invites us to pick up that chalk and create some drawings or writing ourselves. Trompe l'oeil artists even referenced the most legendary competition of ancient Greek art, a contest between the Greek painters Zeuxis and Parhasios. Zeuxis, who painted grapes, supposedly so realistic that birds flew down from the sky in an effort to eat them, and Parhasios, who one-upped Zeuxis by painting a picture that appeared to have a curtain in front of it, which Zeuxis supposedly uh, asked to see removed. Now, I love watching people's faces and hearing your laughter when you look at trompe l'oeil paintings. Because several things happen. Our eyes tend to widen in surprise. Our lips smile in knowing admiration. Maybe we even let slip a little aside, wondering just how an artist achieved such illusions on canvas. These reactions are important. They tell us a few things about trompe l'oeil. 
They tell us that it's interactive, it's often ambiguous, and it's playful. It is fun. Trump Loy is interactive because it invites our participation. We use our vision to try to determine reality from representation, but often we use our hands too, or even prosthetic devices. There are stories of 19th century viewers trying to poke at Harnett's canvases like this with canes or umbrellas to try to determine exactly what was painted and what was not. This is not something I encourage you to do. Let me make that absolutely clear. Trump Loy is ambiguous, too, because sometimes our touch and sight fail us. Sometimes, despite our best sensory exertions, we can't tell the difference between real and painted things. And I'll confess, that's the case for me with this picture, an 18th century Trump Loy by an English artist named George Bickham. It forms part of an English genre of illusions called medley prints. And as you can tell by the fold lines at the left of the image, it simulates a letter that has been sent through the mail. Or maybe it actually was. Despite years of acquaintance with this engraving, I'm still not really sure whether the triangular lettering that reads penny post paid in the upper left corner is a stamp or just a really good imitation of a stamp. This very indeterminacy is part of the fun of trompe l'oeil. I think of trompe l'oeil much as a foodie thinks of a good roast. It's what we can call slow art. It's a genre of painting that invites us to linger, to take the time to peruse and enjoy. Trompe l'oeil draws the viewer near to inspect its finely executed surfaces. It beckons us to look closely to understand its artistry. And far from seeking to deceive us, although sometimes it does achieve that, Trompe l'oeil challenges us to undeceive ourselves, to explain the fiction before us. If we succeed, the response is nearly always one of pleasure. The discovery that something was painted when we mistook it for real invariably produces surprise, wonder, and admiration. Trompe l'oeil can make dupes of unwitting spectators, serving them up for mockery to the bemusement of people already in the know, but it also invites us to laugh at ourselves, to revel in the unhurried pleasure of looking or to grin at our own short-sightedness. For all these reasons, writers in the 17th century Netherlands, where both still life and trompe l'oeil painting began in earnest, used the term pleasing deceptions for visual illusions like this one, which tempts us with the prospect of more tulips, or at least a picture of tulips, visible behind the blue silk curtain. In the British American world, writers employed another term to describe the kind of pleasure involved in such paintings. They called it wit. Now today we use the word wit to describe a sharp, quick sense of comedy or the person possessing that kind of humor. 18th and 19th century people would have recognized that sense of the term, but they also meant something more particular. Wit was the art of drawing likenesses between two things, ideally two things that didn't bear much resemblance to each other. Wit was evident in the ability to contrive elaborate likenesses in the form of puns, caricatures, and metaphors. But if it was clever, it was also cheeky. It marked an intelligent but somewhat disruptive kind of humor. 
This rather beautifully describes the nature and the reception of trompe l'oeil in the United States. Conjuring uncanny likenesses, trompe l'oeil produced a visual pleasure akin to period ideas of wit. I'd like to further consider that idea of the wit of trompe l'oeil through a work of art that I explored in my book, Citizen Spectator. It's a drawing by Samuel Lewis, an artist who, despite being little known in art history today, produced more trompe l'oeil pictures than anyone else in America around 1800. As you can see by this text on the right, Lewis also availed himself of numerous media and techniques in order to create this work. It's a picture that imitates the appearance of old papers with careful finesse. It also meditates on the very relation of likeness and deception by featuring papers that thematize acts of pretense and dissimulation. In fact, it goes even further than this. Lewis lived and worked in Philadelphia, and he gave his, he gave his painting, his picture, to Charles Wilson Peale's famous museum. As part of his donation, he included a second frame filled with the actual papers featured in the drawing. So we would have had the picture and then the things themselves, and it might have looked something like this. Most of the papers are lost now. Lewis called this pairing originals and imitations, and he dared spectators to discern which was which. Side by side, the two frames invited a particular sort of perceptual engagement, a close comparison of extraordinarily similar things. In so doing, they at once enacted and exposed illusion. Well, let me take a step back. Exactly who was this inventive artist? Well, this is normally the part in a lecture when the art historian puts up a beautiful portrait of the person that they are talking about, but I have nothing to show you. And that's important. As far as I know, there is no extant portrait of Samuel Lewis. That, too, tells us something. Lewis probably didn't have the money to commission a portrait of himself. He lived a good part of his life in debt, even spending time in debtor's prison. We know this because he left behind a substantial paper trail. For much of his life, Lewis worked as an instructor of drawing and writing. He also clerked for employers, including an important Philadelphia printer named Matthew Carey. And as you can see in this invoice, which Lewis wrote to Carey, uh, enumerating the work that he had done and the amount that he was to be paid, even Lewis's most quotidian writing had a very decided flair to it. It could be quite stunning. This work, however, was neither prestigious nor lucrative. Lewis struggled to make ends meet. On occasion, he begged jobs and money from Philadelphia businessmen, including Carey. He didn't hesitate to complain to his employer about what he called the extremely tedious nature of proofreading, or plead that he couldn't work on a particularly glum day in 1803 because of what he called, and I quote, an utmost giddiness and swimming in my head. So I'm definitely trying that the next time I have to call in sick to work. <laughs> I think we should all try that. Utmost giddiness and swimming in my head. In 1830, Samuel Lewis pleaded for Carey's financial assistance. He wrote, I am so unfortunately situated that if I do not have a sum paid this afternoon, an execution, meaning a legal order, will issue tomorrow morning, putting me and my family to the, the distress of having our little property of furniture ransacked and taken from us. 
So from such documents, we can really glean a sense of a man who, despite his artistic talents, was really living near poverty. Lewis also made money as a cartographer, or more accurately, as a copyist and compiler of maps, collaborating on atlases with both British and American publishers. This is a really fascinating aspect of his work because maps and trompe l'oeil seem inherently opposed to one another. We think of maps as truthful and trompe l'oeil as deceptive. If we had more time today, we could consider how Lewis managed that balance between these two ways of making images. Records suggest that Lewis traveled back and forth across the Atlantic and lived on and off in London where he contributed a number of trompe l'oeil drawings to annual exhibitions. At the time, such works were called deceptions. This extraordinary example by Lewis entered the National Gallery's collections just a few years ago. It concerns theater and high society in London around 1780. And one detail I want to call your attention to is the card at the very center of the drawing. Mr. Lewis shows us in no uncertain terms just who created this picture. Back in Philadelphia, Lewis's work was included in what we may think of as the first group art show in the United States, the Columbianum Exhibition of 1795. It was held in the building that's now called Independence Hall, and it featured several works by Lewis called A Deception. In addition, there were works by Raphael Peel, also called A Deception, and one by Peel's father, his famous Staircase Group, now at the Philadelphia Museum. Only one of Lewis's deceptions from Philadelphia, the letter rack from the Peel Museum, is still known to be extant. It's a tour de force of trompe l'oeil representation. Generating the illusion of material things we can touch as well as see, it features 14 papers of varying size, shape, and thickness, each scaled to life and suspended against a wall by a pair of intersecting red tapes or ribbons. The drawing exerts a profound interest in matters of illusion and, Im Im and imitation, not only by dint of its execution, but also in the subjects that Lewis represented. Many of the papers name well-known sites of display in Philadelphia, such as Peel's Museum at the bottom, and the New Theater, also known as the Chestnut Street Theater, at the left. Other papers suggest the transport of people and things in and out of the city. For example, the lottery ticket here refers to the construction of a bridge in nearby Delaware, and the wrapper for London court plaster links Philadelphia to points overseas. Lewis visually connects these papers via the crisscrossing ribbons that lend a sense of order to the seeming disarray. These straight lines usher the eye from one paper to another, charting relations between the places identified on the papers and approximating the sight lines created by the city's famous street grid. As the drawing evokes urban space, however, it also measures time. It presents itself as a collection of objects accumulated over the course of nearly a decade, from this invitation to a party at the theater honoring George Washington's birthday in 1796, presumably Lewis went, to the lottery ticket, which Lewis offered as collateral on a loan to Carey in 1805. These papers double as souvenirs, as tokens of events experienced in the past 
now consigned to memory. To persuade viewers of their ephemerality, Lewis simulated the destructive effects of age and the elements with paint and watercolor. In several places, he pooled the pigments, suggesting the stain of mildew or the wrinkle of water damage. Adding to this effect is the way in which his papers overlap, generating an illusion of material substance and spatial depth. Even as they record the passage of time then, Lewis's papers really claim to exist in the here and now. Now there's ample precedence for what Lewis did in European art, especially in the work of Dutch painters like Waller and Bayant. And like this earlier letter rack, Lewis's drawing functioned in part as a vehicle of self-promotion. No one comparing his set of originals and imitations could fail to be impressed by his command of diverse print types and the delicacy of his execution. Moreover, Lewis took care to feature details that visualized his professional activities. By including the ticket to Peel's museum, he acknowledged that he was a museum subscriber. Peel also employed him to do some clerical work. Lewis even included this little detail, which recalls the other trompe l'oeil work by him that you've seen. Although trompe l'oeil often demands that an artist suppress any indication of individual style, in this case, Lewis inserted a handwritten card with his signature near the center. It reads, Samuel Lewis presents. However self-referential the drawing may be, it addresses much broader issues of imitation and illusion. This is especially evident in the nature of the papers represented, many of which actually function to undermine the picture's claims to exist in the here and now. The lottery ticket, for example, signals hopeful purchase in gambling and the virtual stakes of money and chance. And the London for the wrapper for London court plaster advertises a substance that Europeans no, European nobles use to simulate the appearance of beauty marks on the face. The term court refers to the heuristic site of this practice so that the plaster would be modeled into a small shape and could actually be placed on the face. By stoking the imagination with these schemes of pretense and gaming, the papers hint at the unreality of the very illusion that they help to compose. Now there's much more to say about the ways in which Lewis's drawing stages metavisual, even metaphysical dilemmas. But in the interest of time, let me consider how the picture worked as part of a pair, as a set of imitations and originals. This doubleness stages a balance between the mental faculty of wit, the art of drawing likenesses, and the faculty of judgment, the capacity to identify differences between very similar things. Lewis conceded that one half of the papers was real, but he left it up to spectators to discern which was which. Now maybe this was easy, maybe you could tell at a glance which was the picture and which was the paper. Regardless, the pairing invited a sustained inspection. We have to imagine standing between the two frames, peering closely at one, then at the other, then looking back to the first again. Maybe extending a finger to touch, maybe stepping back to view the two together. Lewis's set of originals and imitations demanded a studied comparison of similarities and differences. In so doing, it not only demonstrated the artist's command of wit, 
it also exercised the spectator's judgment. Judgment entailed the observation of difference within resemblance. Sober and analytical, it was directly opposed to the playful irreverence of wit. Whereas wit brought ideas together, judgment took them apart. This was precisely the capacity that one had to deploy in order to distinguish copies from originals and to expose deceptions. It was a necessary perceptual and social skill for connoisseurs who had to identify fakes and forgeries. But it was also useful in ordinary life. 19th century Americans looked warily upon the antics of people skilled at mimicry, such as forgers, ventriloquists, even actors. Judgment was the antidote to such anxieties because it promised that you could discern minute contrasts between seemingly identical things. So this was the challenge that Lewis's installation posed and invited viewers to resolve. Looking back and forth across the planes of two surfaces, viewers had to discern discrepancies of visual and material form. The pairing of originals and imitations modeled that idea of judgment as an antidote to deception. By way of conclusion, let me just suggest another way that wit is wrapped up in the practice of trompe l'oeil. If wit describes trompe l'oeil's predication on resemblance, its punning mimicry of material things, it also underscore, underscores trompe l'oeil's tendency to align itself with other genres. Consider this arrangement of personal artifacts hanging upon a wall, painted by George Cope in 1887. As the title tells us, these objects belong to one Major Levi Gein Macaulay, who served as a Union officer during the Civil War. They include his sword, sword and saber, a hat embroidered with the insignia of the 7th Regiment, and his canteen, likewise marked seven. So what we have here is trompe l'oeil as portraiture. Much as Lewis had created an elusive self-portrait through his own composition of things hanging upon a wall, Cope pieces together parts from Macaulay's past to remember his wartime service. Of course, trompe l'oeil has historically been more closely associated with still life, and here too, wit bridges categories of depiction. In the painting at right, a Harnett painting entitled For Sunday's Dinner, wit is present in the way that Harnett's forlorn chicken parodies the genre of hunting trophies. In place of the game birds painted by artists like Traviez, Harnett supplants a homely barnyard creature. And whereas Traviez invites us to admire feathers not yet ruffled by human touch, Harnett envisions the bloodied skin of a bird readied for a pot in the kitchen. Now I see this one analogy between Harnett's bird and the trophy convention, but a spectator in Harnett's own day suggested a different one. When Harnett displayed this, paint, this painting in 1888 at the National Academy of Design, one viewer likened the chicken's frank nudity to the most vaunted of all artistic subjects, academic figure painting. The man teasingly urged his brother, a well-known illustrator named Walt McDougall, to go see what he called Harnett's nude. Well, <laughs> McDougall hastened the exhibition, and he was quite disappointed to find, as he put it, a dressed turkey hanging from a kitchen door. 
It was surely an instance, however rare in Trompe-Loy, when it did not prove difficult to tell which was which. Thank you. This has been the National Gallery of Art podcast. 